0: Well, we begin a new preaching series this morning, and I'm excited about it because it's always fun in the year when things change, and the colors change, and the emphasis of the Word of God's uh, the readings change. If you look at the cover of your bulletin, we have some new artwork that aligns with this series. I'm calling this series Coming Alive, and I looked at the lectionary readings that were prescribed for Lent and Notice that as one of many themes that lined up with the different scriptures in there. This idea of new life coming out of what was dead. And the cover of the bulletin has a picture that's sort of hard to see of a dark forest. Symbolic of darkness, of death, of being lost. And right in the front of the picture is a bright yellow flower. It doesn't seem to fit in there, but it's a promise of things to come. It's a picture of a one flower coming in, and we would expect that many more would begin to bloom. I wrote a little blog post um, about my experiences of being up in the north growing up when about Easter time, daffodils would start to pop through the snow and just little green blades of grass. And it was it was this contrast of of what seemed very fragile life coming through what is cold and dead. And that's the theme here of coming alive. And of course, this is going to culminate on Easter Sunday when we look not at us coming alive, but of Jesus coming alive, Jesus who is currently alive and risen. When I graduated from high school, I took a trip with my family up to Alaska. My uncle lives up there still to this day. And he took us out to a restaurant that was along a a river. It was a fast running river that had a lot of snow melt that came down from the higher elevations and, and just ripped through this town. And it was maybe, I don't know, 200 feet or so across. It wasn't very far to get across that river, but there was a road, strangely, that came down the hillside, almost like a boat ramp would, and it just went right down into the water, and then on the other side of the river, it came right back up. And I looked at that in the late June, and I thought, what kind of cars do they have up here in Alaska? That's, that's a bold drive. And he said, actually, the river freezes solid for like nine months out of the year, and they actually just they clear the snow off of it like they would any other road, and you just drive right down, drive across the ice, and keep going. And he he said, though, everyone around here knows there's a certain date after which you don't go across there. You have to drive all the way around the long way. And he said, inevitably, there is some fool who thinks he can make it and his car goes into the ice and he gets his picture in the local newspaper. (laughs) Now I share that as an illustration of you can be so confident in something and yet that thing not be strong enough to sustain you the opposite is true as well. You can be unsure, very hesitant, iffy, and yet the thing can be strong enough to hold you. There was a car that went across right before that car and made it, right? And so that person might've been like, I don't know. uh," And the wife's going, don't do it, don't do it. And he's going, I can do it. I don't know, you know, and, and made it across. And so they had very weak faith in that ice, but the ice was strong enough to sustain them. The other guy could have been like, "Oh, no problem. We yeah, I got. I do this every year at this day, you know." And then he went in. So it was the the object of the faith that mattered, not the strength of the faith or the trust. So keep that in mind as we consider our text today. The passage that is my focus for preaching is from the Romans road, which is a simple evangelistic tool to help articulate what is the good news. And it's this um, series of scripture verses from Paul's letter to the Romans, and it goes like this. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Romans five eight says God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then my text for today, Romans 10.9, says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead— you will be saved. Now that's, that's known as the Romans road and it's a helpful tool and it, it's not a trick formula or something. The whole thing that saves us is faith. We are saved by faith alone and that's important. But the concept of faith is difficult and we have some linguistic problems. We have language problems, especially in our English. In the Greek, in which the New Testament was written, the words for believe and faith are identical. They're the same root. It's just one is the verb form and one is the noun form. And we have other uses of the words faith and belief. For instance, we can intellectualize belief like this. I can believe that one plus two equals three and not have to put any commitment in that. I don't have to trust on it or lean on it in any way. I can just yeah, I, I give mental assent. I believe that is true. Or the concept of faith can sometimes mean an irrational decision to trust something we know is unlikely. So the Jaguars are having a terrible season, terrible season, terrible season, you know, and you're starting to go, oh, I know they're not even going to make the playoffs. And then a friend says to you, you've just got to have faith, right? How many times is there a sports movie? I'm thinking in my mind of the movie Moneyball about the Oakland A's and baseball. How many times is there a sports movie? And they use the journey song, don't stop believing as like the theme, right? Sports teams use that as their theme. Don't stop believing. Keep having faith. Even though hope is lost on the third game of the season, this team is not going to make it, right? So sometimes we use faith that way and it's confusing. I, I heard a pastor one time preach on the concept of faith and he said, for years, I have not taught this correctly. He said, I have taught faith as R-I-S-K, risk, not S-U-R-E, sure. And there's a difference there because we can think of a leap of faith or blind faith or something like this, which really is about the uncertainty of it. But, but like I said, it's the object we place our faith on that matters. And Jesus is a sure foundation, even if your faith is weak, he is not. And that's what's so important. Now in verse 11 of Romans chapter 10, it says this for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Your car will not go through the ice. And the word believe in him is not as literal as it could be. Technically it's the preposition on believe on him even though we smooth it out because you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that in English. It, it sounds weird. But believe on Christ. Or whenever it says, I mean, I did a, a word search in my computer on this, and I looked up the word believe, and then in, and believe on. And I did it using the Greek because the computer can quickly search everything. Forty times, it's one preposition that means into, and only like eight times it was the word, the other one that means in, believe in Christ. It usually says believe into Christ, not just believe in him. Yeah, I, I believe in him as opposed to I believe on him. I'm trusting on Christ. I'm leaning on him. I, I read an account of a, a missionary who was trying to translate the Bible into a, an indigenous tribes language. And he had studied the language and was getting proficient at it but he couldn't find any word whatsoever in their language for belief or faith. And so he said to the, one of the people that was there, he he pulled his feet up off of the chair and leaned back so that all of his weight was on the chair. And he said, what am I doing? And in the local language, the person said a word, which basically meant I'm trusting my full weight on this thing. And then that's the word that he used to translate the Bible, wherever it says, believe or faith. It's about bleeding on Christ and putting our weight on him. The gospel passage that we just heard from Luke chapter 4 is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He's been baptized in the River Jordan. He comes up, he receives the Holy Spirit. God affirms him, and then the Holy Spirit drives him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. This is an important thing because we had another man who once was out in a garden in the wilderness, and Satan came and tempted him. And the story there in the Garden of Eden was failure. And when Adam succumbed to those temptations, he plunged himself and our entire race into darkness, death, separation from God, judgment, the wrath of God being poured out on us. All of that happened because he failed at the temptation. Enter the second Adam. As Paul calls him, Jesus. Same scenario, out in the wilderness. Satan's there tempting, like he is he's the father of lies, and he's good at it. So he's attacking Jesus' identity. If you're the Son of God, if you are the Son of God. And he's just heard, remember, You are my son, with you I'm well pleased, coming up out of the river. So now here he is being tempted, being tempted for 40 days. And Jesus is so solid, quotes scripture right back to Satan. Even when Satan misuses scripture, Jesus corrects it. And, and then Satan leaves him. Jesus defeats that temptation. And it's not because he was God. He was tempted in every way that we are. And sometimes we look at him and think, well, it's easier for him. No, that temptation was just as real as our temptation is. And Jesus being so sure and so worthy of our trust, he won. He defeated Satan there and continued to defeat him and defeated him all the way to Easter Sunday to the resurrection. He is worth placing your trust in. Knowledge is not enough. To know facts about God is not enough. The scriptures tell us in James chapter two, that the demons believe that he's the son of God and they tremble at him, but they don't trust on him. They still are in rebellion against him, but they know who he is. Paul writes in the first chapter of Romans, in Romans 1.32, he says, describing society, he says, though they knew God and those who live the way they do would die, they continued to do it and even approved others who did these things. So they knew what was true. They knew God was the Lord. They knew his law and yet didn't do it. So believing or having knowledge is not enough. Having knowledge and even approving of it is not enough. So think of Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know you must be from God for no one can do the signs that you were doing if God was not with him. And yet Nicodemus wasn't saved yet, but he knew who Jesus was and even approved of it, but he still, it wasn't enough to save him. The difference is depending on him, placing your trust on him, believing into Christ. There's a movie that uh, we've watched a half a dozen times, at least in my house, Ocean's Eleven. Many of you have seen it. It's a remake of a Rat Pack movie. It's got George, the new one has George Clooney and Matt Damon and Don Cheadle and a whole bunch of, uh, uh, Brad Pitt, a big cast, Julia Roberts. There's a scene in there I was going to show you, but when I looked it up on the, it was so short of a scene, it would, it wouldn't have been worth the effort. So let me just describe it. There's a scene where they, they, being George Clooney and Matt Damon, have to go down an elevator shaft that's full of alarm lasers. And the power's going to go out, and they have to real quickly rappel down to the bottom, and then the power comes back on. Now they're into the safe area, where they're going to rob a, a safe, a bank, uh, a casino. And they pull out this little device that's about as big as their hand, and it's stainless steel, and it's got a couple pulleys in it, and some wire, thin wire, and a magnet. And they reach up inside the elevator shaft, and it goes, thunk, and it sticks on with a magnet to an I-beam. And then they turn something on it, and a little light comes on. And then they pull this little tiny wire out and hook it to their belt. And, and when they do this, Matt Damon goes, are you sure this thing's going to hold us? And George Clooney's answer is not convincing. And then he, and Clooney holds on to the I-beam, and he swings out, and he goes, like, like that. He's so unsure. And then Matt Damon does the same thing. And then they just hang there until the power goes out. And then they go all the way down. And then they cut the line and they're in. The point is they were so unsure of that belay system. And yet it held them again. It's the thing that matters. It doesn't matter how big the faith is in the thing they had to actually, at one point they had to step off of the platform and, and hang on that wire And that's what we're called to do in Christ. We are called to actually depend on him, not just know that he's the son of God, not just believe that he uh, defeated death and was raised on Easter Sunday, not even give approval to it. That's a good thing. But actually get to the place where I go, I know that I can stand in the presence of a holy God because I'm trusting on him. To get to that place is so important. Now consider some of the ways that you trust on Christ. Confession of real sin is about trusting on Christ to go before him and say, I have failed here requires you to trust that he actually is going to do what he promises, which is when we confess our sins, he will forgive us and cleanse us. So prayer in general and confession specifically is about trusting on Christ. If you don't believe that he is real and you're not willing to trust on him, then you won't pray. But if you do believe he's real, then you will pray. And if he's not real and you're praying, you look really foolish because you're just talking into the air. So it requires trusting on God to actually say something to him. That is, that is trusting on Christ expressions of worship to come here and sing songs to him, to come to his table. All of this is a way of trusting on Christ and giving and serving all of these things. But here's the question I ask about this, this topic. What else might I be trusting on? other than him to get me by. And there are so many things that we can trust in money, career advancement, prior successes, relationships. When something gets hard, is your first instinct to go to your community of people and ask them to help? Or is it to turn to Christ first, who his strength is made perfect in our weakness I'm naturally a problem solver. I go right from, oh, there's a problem. Let's fix it. And I come up with solutions. And I'm trying, I'm trying in Lent to not do that. To first go, God, help. You can do this. What's my part? What what can I do to help you solve this problem? You're the problem solver. I am not. I wonder what you could do in this season of Lent to trust on Christ and to not trust in false things. Because really, none of those things I described can sustain all of the challenges of this life. The last and great one being death, which all of us have to go through. You can't trust in money there. You can't trust in relationships with people there. You can't trust in your career advancements or successes in this world. There's no worldly power that's going to help you in that moment. But you can trust on Christ. He is strong enough and will carry you through that. Faith is something that must be exercised. So let's trust on Christ. Now, I I recognize that there may be someone in here today who's saying, I really want to have faith, but I just don't. There's a real mystery in how this works because the biblical concept and what the scholars call regeneration, the darkness in that forest and something making that plant start to grow is a work of the Holy Spirit. Faith is a gift. It's something he gives. You can't just muster it up. It's a gift from him. And that, that means he starts to work in your life before you start to trust on Christ. He moves you to go and explore, who is this God? What is Christianity all about? What is the message of the gospel? And everyone I know who is a Christian, and if you disagree with this, come tell me, everyone I know who's a Christian looks back and says, I thought I was chasing God. I thought I was seeking him. And now I realize he was moving first. He stirred my heart to want to understand. Then I went looking and then I found this, and I thought I found God, but he actually found me. That is the universal experience of people. Once they get far enough down the road of faith to look back and they go, God saved me. That is it. God saved me. God moved me to pursue him. So I called out to him and then he saved me. I was regenerated. I was given new life. And then I professed faith and trusted him. This passage in Romans ten nine seems out of order because It is because Paul is simply quoting, he's using Deuteronomy 30 verse 14 as a launching platform for what he wants to say. So it's not that you confess with your mouth first and then believe in your heart. It actually, the confession is the outward expression. So the next verse flips it and and he goes on in verse 10 and he says, um, for with the heart one believes and is justified and then with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Both justified and saved have to work together here. And what he is saying is, faith saves you, but the saving faith always issues forth in trusting on Christ, professing him, saying Jesus is Lord, as opposed to other things. So it's about faith. Now, if you don't have faith, I want to close by sharing something that was very encouraging from one of the last chapters in Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, talking about this very issue of the need for God to stir in you and bring new life to you so that you can then pursue Christ. He tells the story of a parishioner who is in his church and this woman did not have faith and prayed for years and years and years, God, help me find you. And it was just to no avail. And then a Christian friend of hers said, maybe you should pray in a different way. Why don't you pray, God, would you find me? And so this person started to pray, God, would you find me? You're the good shepherd who seeks the lost sheep. And the reason that that story is in Keller's book is because he did. That person was found by Christ and became a believer. And that's why they were in that church. And that's why he heard that testimony. So I want to encourage you to go to God and say, find me. I feel lost. Would you, the good shepherd, come and find me? And as it says here, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He is trustworthy. Let us trust on him and not on anything else. Let's pray and offer up to the Lord the things that we've trusted on other than him and ask him to strengthen us. Father, again, we confess for those times when we have not trusted in you. I thank you, Jesus, that you are strong enough to sustain us, that you can carry us all the way through. Father, would you show us in this season of Lent how we can trust on Christ? Move us to times of prayer and fasting and giving and serving as an expression of what you're doing in our hearts. Help us, Lord, for we are weak. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand and let's join with Christians down through the ages and declare what we believe using the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead in the life of the world to come. Amen.